This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Struggling to keep up with the latest releases? Want to keep an eye on what's coming out in the next few months or work on your own personal pre-ordering needs? If you need help turbocharging your TBR, Book Riot Insiders is here for you. Our new release index, available at the novel level for just $5 a month, is curated by resident Velocity reader Liberty Hardy from the All the Books podcast. She keeps track of the most exciting books, pre-publication, so that you can browse them, know when your favorite author's next novel hits stores, or find your next favorite read. Go to insiders.bookriot.com to sign up. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Eukera. We're recording on Friday, March 15th. Hi, Kim. Hi, Alice. How are you? I'm great. It's Friday. I uh, We've both been consuming our separate versions of chocolate, which we were just talking about. Uh, I feel like everything's good. What about uh, you? It is good. Yes, I, I was stuffing my face with dark chocolate M&Ms before we started recording. Um, it is not raining or snowing here, so that is a positive development. Uh, yeah, the weekend is here. Hooray, hooray for us. So um, as terms of follow-up, this is, I guess, not maybe follow-up, but maybe a little bit of news. Um, I think it was this week, or maybe it was late last week, that the uh, trailer for The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, which is HBO's upcoming documentary on Theranos, uh, is coming out. I think it comes out next week, early Monday-ish. Um, and it is a documentary about Elizabeth Holmes and her company Theranos, uh, which was chronicled in a book that we both loved, Bad Blood by John Carreau. Um, Have you seen the trailer? I watched it today because you so kindly linked it in our show notes. Um, it looks really well done. Do you know if it's at all? Um, she got that documentarian to like do uh, commercials or something for Theranos. Do you know if it's like using footage from that? I don't, but it kind of looks like, some, yeah, it looks like she has sat down for interviews with somebody for this, which I can't imagine if they had not connected with her before deciding they were going to write about how or do a film about how she was such a criminal. Like, I can't imagine that she would do that now. So, yeah, I'm super curious where they got kind of all of their um, Elizabeth Holmes um, footage in particular. Um, it looks like they've got a bunch of the whistleblowers that John Carreau, um interviewed in his book are also part of this, which is kind of exciting. Yeah. Did you see like her wide, wide eyes throughout like the entire trailer? Yeah. They're so big. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's funny that I still am surprised by her voice and I'm not sure exactly why. Because in the book, they talk a lot about um, how striking her voice is because it's so low um, and whether that's a, a put on or whether that's her actual voice. Um, and it's very... It's so weird to see it when you um, hear it, like, in the, the trailer. I guess hear it in the trailer. Um, it's because it kind of sounds like, you know, if you're, like, a girl trying to be, like, kind of talking like this. And it's just, like, that's really disarming. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, I've done this as, like, a joke. But you're doing this like this is your real <laughs> voice. So I don't know what to make of it. 
Yeah, so interesting watching her, yeah, like in the book talking about, you know, how she always wore black because she was very into Steve Jobs. And so, yeah, all the footage of her is her in all black with these very striking red lips and her blonde hair. And um, not that it's just about her appearance, but, yeah, it's very – it's really striking um, when you see it on film. So I'm I'm very interested in seeing it when it comes out. Oh, also, I had lunch today with a friend who said that she had a coworker who left her company to work at Theranos. And I, like, lost my mind. What? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's amazing. I want to meet that person. I know. Apparently, he was like, yeah, it was terrible. And, like, none of our stuff could do what we said it did. And I was, like, intensely frustrated all the time. And I was like, oh, yeah, that tallies. Oh, man. That's so interesting. What, the other thing about it that really interests me is whether, like, all of these Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes projects, like, were they in the works as the company was kind of imploding? Or was, like, the John Carriel's Wall Street Journal reporting the first time that anyone really knew this and all of this stuff is kind of coming after it? Or, like, did the book inspire some of it? Or, like, where where, where in the game did all these people get into it? I, like, I'm very interested in that. Like, so interesting how things were, like, so good for so long and then they just imploded pretty spectacularly. The podcast, The Dropout, interviews, how do you pronounce his name? Carrie Whitaba? Carrie I think. Yeah, Carrie that guy. Um, it interviews him. So I'm assuming that it's kind of like, hey, you're like kind of our main person for this who like did all you're the guy. research and whatnot. Yeah. So we're like getting this info from you. Um, I'm not sure about, since it does seem like it's using footage from the stuff that she had like hired, I think that it's probably a mix of the two. Yeah, we'll have to watch it and report back. Um, I'm hope I we yeah, have HBO, so hopefully I can get t- time to watch it next week uh, when it's out. So fun! That is a exciting kind of piece of news because I always like when books get a lot of press, and nonfiction books don't seem to get a lot. So it's exciting when we get a thing. <laughs> I think anyway. <laughs> All right. Um, so with that, we will move on to our um, first segment of uh, the podcast every week, which is new books, uh, where we talk about books that are coming out soon, recently came out that we are excited or interested in um, to share with everyone else. So um, my first book this week is called Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed by Men or Designed for Men by Carolyn Criado Perez. Um, and so this is a book about how the data we use sort of like everywhere in the world doesn't take into account gender and not in a good way. Um, It doesn't take into account gender in the sense that it treats men as the default and it treats women as a typical. And so because men are considered a default in this data, it can lead to bias and discrimination that just gets baked into the systems that we have. Um, And it is damaging for women to have these kind of um, biases built into the system. So, um, it's uh, super interesting so far. So um, I read kind of a, a little bit of it. And then I, I found this video um, that we'll link to in the show notes where she's on. Um, uh, she's talking a little bit about some of the examples in the book. And so um, one of them is, uh, it's funny, she talks about bathrooms um, and how the reason that like women have longer waits in bathrooms isn't just because we're like bad at going to the bathroom. It's that it has to do with why even if you set up equal space for men and women's bathroom facilities, women's bathroom, each one takes up more space and women just like take longer to use them. And so even if you're sort of pretending to be equal, it really creates this very unequal system. Um, and another like more, I guess, concrete or like serious example is um cars. Um, So uh, even though men are more likely to be in car accidents, women are more likely to be seriously injured in car accidents because 
car safety systems are designed with a crash test dummy that represents like a 50% man. So like sort of 50% height and weight, but that is not 50% height and weight for women. And so the way that women's bodies sit and fit in cars is different enough that women can be seriously injured just because cars are not designed to fit women because we default to a male crash test dummy. Um, And so the book has tons more examples like that where discrimination and bias get baked into data and it affects women's safety and ability to kind of go about in the world. Um, So I am super interesting. I'm very interested in finishing this one because it's been just, I'm saying interesting a lot, but it really is interesting. Um, And that is Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men by Carolyn Criado Perez. That is fascinating. Uh, I can't believe... you know what? I can believe that bathroom thing because it's always <laughs> felt like suspicious. That's all I'm saying about that. She she explains it way better in the video, but yeah, it was very much just like even though things are pretending to be equal, like they're really not, and there's reasons for that, and so we should fix it. Basically, that crash test dummy thing makes me mad. Just saying, now I'm all like riled up, which is perfect for <laughs> my next book. Uh, which is The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Kara Robertson. Uh, my first note on this says, Lizzie Borden! Not because I condone her potential <laughs> action, because it was bad if she did it. I just, in terms of like, so there's the podcast, My Favorite Murder, which of course is not like I have a favorite murder actually, but just like the murder you're the most intrigued by. And for me, I really think it's Lizzie Borden, um, mostly because what she, and what Kara Robertson says is that there's so little actual evidence that they had, or at, the, or at least that the police collected. Maybe there was more and they just didn't get it. But uh, that it it very much just kind of whatever opinion you arrive at shows more about you. You know what I mean? As opposed to like what the mm-hmm. actual, like facts show because they're, they just don't show very much. So it's kind of like, oh, this is like you are more biased towards X or Y. I think she probably did it. I think she had a reason for it. <laughs> make of that what you will. <laughs> but um anyway so what what the publisher says this is out now and you should read it it's really good um it uh explores the stories that lizzie borden's culture wanted and expected to hear and how these stories influence the debate inside and outside of the courtroom so uh robertson's been researching this for like i think like almost 20 years is what the introduction was saying um, and she's just like gotten like a real deep dive into it. And it's, I think more than other things I've read about it, it's very kind of like, not only like putting you there, but not in a, a salacious way, but also just like really help, helping you understand, you know, like where everyone was and what the timeline was and what the discussion was that was happening. So, um, it's really well researched, but, um, I have a note that I really quickly want to say that the, Current Borden House in Fall River, yes, Fall River, Massachusetts, is um, it's a bed and breakfast, which I have a lot of feelings about because I think it's in extraordinarily poor taste. Again, I'm very interested in true crime. I'm very interested in like I don't know various like murder cases, like most like younger women, I guess. But um, I think that there's a line, and that paying to stay in a place just because some people were murdered there is like kind of gross. <laughs> so uh, just putting that out there. Yeah. That being said, I do want to visit the house because that's where the line is. <laughs> but don't sleep there. Don't sleep. Th- don't sleep there. It's uh, uh. okay. Anyway, 
I will put a caveat on that, though, in addition, and say that if there's no other way for them to keep the house, like, preserved to a point, because obviously people are sleeping there, so it's not super preserved, but um, then I I kind of understand, like, okay, you got to do what you got to do, but still, it's more that I'm questioning the people who are paying to stay there rather than the people running the place. Um, If you are interested in reading this book, and you should be because it's really good, um, it is The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Kara Robertson. Excellent. Yeah, I read an article about this one that she, yeah, it was more than 15 years she spent kind of researching and trying to get it published. So it's uh, definitive and good. So awesome. Um, My second book is it's different. Uh, it's uh, The Lost Gutenberg, The Astounding Story of One Book's 500-Year Odyssey by Margaret Leslie Davis. Uh, and so this is a book that traces the story of one Gutenberg Bible from the time that it was printed until where it is today. So um, as uh, just a t- t- teeny bit of background, the Gutenberg Bible was one of the very first books to be printed on a printing press uh, by Johannes Gutenberg. And there are currently less than 50 of them left in print. So this is one of the rarest books that there is. It's an extremely sought after collector's item. Um, and so this book follows one of those Bibles. when it So it starts when it was created. It follows it through its ownership, which um, was by monks and then a rich earl. Um, and then I'm just going to read a quote from the um, the book uh, description because it's really funny. So it's an Earl, the Worcestershire sire sauce king and a nuclear physicist to its ultimate resting place in a steel vault in Tokyo. Um, there also apparently along the way was this um, woman, female collector, Estelle Doni. Um, and so she had the book in her library for a while. Um, and I just, um, I love books like this. I think it's really interesting and it's a way to get at books as collector's items and obsessions and um, kind of treasures and things like that following a very specific book through uh, about as long as you can follow the tracing of a book since it was one of the first ones printed there. So um, I'm ex- I haven't gotten to read this one at all. I, I couldn't find a galley or anything like that. So um, I'm excited to get it from my library when I can. So that is uh, The Lost Gutenberg, The Astounding Story of One Book's 500-Year Odyssey by Margaret Leslie Davis. In uh, In grade school, did you ever have to write those stories that were like a day in the life of a penny? Was that only <laughs> Was that only my school? I don't remember doing that, no. Oh, this reminded me of that. But also, uh, The uh, People of the Book by Hoosie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that person. That was a good book. Geraldine Brooks. Thank you so much. That was great. Yeah, that's like a fun pairing thing for The the Lost Gutenberg is People of the Book by oh, yeah. Geraldine Brooks. I will try to put that in the show notes. Um, so my next pick, sorry, that wasn't actually that helpful as an addition slash commentary to your excellent book pick, but it was just reminding me. Um, my next pick is Humanimal, is how I think it's <laughs> pronounced, human, Humanimal. Okay, so <laughs> it's, um, how Homo sapiens <laughs> became nature's most paradoxical creature, a new evolutionary history by Adam Rutherford. Adam Rutherford also wrote A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, and it's uh, out March 19th from The Experiment, which is a fun publisher name. Ooh. So how he approaches this is it's very like, we are, we think very highly of ourselves and we should, but also we shouldn't. Because we are also extremely similar to animals, but also very different from them. Like he talks about it in this very kind of like, there's a paradox going on. So he says that our genome is 98% identical to a chimpanzee's. Uh, and yet we think of ourselves as exceptional. And are we? So 
he says yes and no. So he looks across the animal kingdom and he says that many things that people thought were like just humans do this um, are not true. So in Australia, uh, raptors have been seen starting fires to scatter prey, which uh, I'm astounded by. Mm. Yeah. In Zambia, a a chimpanzee named Julie started a fashion of wearing grass in one ear, which I find completely charming. Um, (laughs) Someone do that, please. Uh, So there's just all these things that like we think like, oh, humans are like elevated because of X, Y, Z. And he's like, no, but uh, we have developed this culture that is far more complex than any other that we've observed. So why does that happen? What does that say about us? Um, it's really cool in terms of just like facts. So you have all these facts about like ants and giraffes and like elephants and whales and, uh, and how that relates to us and like why we're kind of different, but also not. So, um, if you're interested in fun facts about humans and animals, then I recommend Humanimal, <laughs> how Homo sapiens became nature's most paradoxical creature, a new evolutionary history by Adam Rutherford. That sounds fun. Good one. Um, so my last pick is one. So my sister always makes jokes that she can pick out exactly what kind of nonfiction book I'm going to to grab. And so when we go to bookstores together, she'll often like come back and be like, this one, this is one you want. And she's usually really good at it. And this is one where I think if I told her what it was about, she would be like, yes, this is 100% a book that you would read because it is so nerdy and weird. Uh, no one else will care. But I'm excited about it. So uh, the book is called The Sakura Obsession, The Incredible Truth or The Incredible Story of the Plant Hunter Who Saved Japan's Cherry Blossom by Naoko Abe. Uh, And so this book is a 1,200-year history of Japanese cherry blossom trees uh, and tells the story specifically of a British botanist who helped save them from extinction. Um, And so the guy, uh, his name is Collingwood Ingram, which is such a good name. I, I love it. Uh, So in 1907, he went to Japan on his honeymoon and he fell in love with the cherry blossom trees. And so he brought back a hundreds of cuttings of the trees and created a cherry blossom garden in England. Um, But then uh, several years later, he heard that the great white cherry tree was extinct in Japan. And so he took a cutting from his collection and sent it back there via the Trans-Siberian Express. Um, And eventually over the course of his lifetime, he sent hundreds of varieties around the world to grow in other places. And so his love of this tree is basically responsible for it being kind of all over the world where people can uh, love and enjoy them. So uh, it also, along with that story, gives a history of cherry blossoms from uh, the time they became a national symbol in Japan through um, its use as an emblem of imperialism in the 1930s and kind of to our present day obsession with seeing the trees flower all over the places that they have um, expanded to. So um, I don't know. There's just like something about that kind of uh, like history story that is like so specific and weird um, and but also like kind of amazing because everyone sees cherry blossom trees everywhere and likes them until they get really messy that I just find really fascinating. So this is another one I did not get to really preview at all, um, but I'm going to try and find a copy of it because I think it just sounds very charming and and weird. So that is The Sakura Obsession, The Incredible True Story of the Plant Hunter Who Saved Japan's Cherry Blossoms by Naoko Abe. That looks amazing. Um, I'm really, really glad that you found that because that was not on my radar at all. So, and I don't know why it sounds so compelling, but it really does. I'm like, yes, I, I will read about this right? man who, who like saved Japan's cherry blossom. Right? Yeah. 
I lived in Champaign, Illinois for a while. And at the University of Illinois, um, I think it's one of their parks. They have like a bunch of cherry blossom trees. And they're, I was there when they were like blooming and it was insanely crowded. Everyone was freaking out and like taking photos like that were extremely picturesque, you know, like amongst the cherry blossoms. Uh, that is awesome. Also, it reminds me, and I don't know why, of The Feather Thief, which you read. Do you like, do you, want, hmm. do you understand why that might be a pairing? Because I don't know why. Yeah, I could see that. They're sort of like very specific natural histories of of a thing. Um, I, I don't get the sense that there's crime in this one, but the crime in that other one was a little bit like light crime, burglary and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I can kind of see the like kind of generally like nature-y history books. So yeah. What a great genre of book. Okay. My last new release is Pocahontas and the English Boys Caught Between Cultures in Early Virginia by Karen Ordahl Kupperman. I think this is out from NYU Press. It's definitely on like a university press. Um, So I started this and the intro was like a little dry and I was like, I don't know. (laughs) And um, this was yesterday. So I was like, "Uh, pressure's on. I got to pick something. But uh, the more I read, the more I got really interested in it. It's really short. It's less than 200 pages. So basically, she t- she's talking about, Kupperman's talking about Jamestown and its founding. And, you know, as any, like, history nerd knows, um, Jamestown's founding was incredibly messed up. And they brought over all of these aristocrats who then were like, we don't know how to do anything. So then all these people starved. Uh, It was really, really bad. This was also in the midst of like this huge drought. So like local tribes, they were like, can you help us? And they were like a little bit, but like, we'll need your like guns and other supplies you have because they weren't just going to give them food uh, because there was a huge drought. Anyway, um. Everyone, everyone was fine. Uh, so no, it was really bad. The first, the first attempt at founding Jamestown was a horrible failure. They tried a second attempt, and in this sort of like this book covers this um, time period, and the main focus she has is that at the time, in like the late 1500s, early 1600s, English people especially were taking young people who were probably like 12, so like adolescents, whatever, like proto teenagers, so they didn't have the idea of teenagers at the time. And they were just sending them off to other families because I guess, I guess kids kids around that age have always been difficult. So the argument that she puts forward in the book is she's like, they would send them to other families who didn't have the sentimental ties to these children. So it's just like they would be disciplined by people other than their parents and maybe grow up to become like, okay, adults. I mean, who knows how that worked out. But so she's focusing on these three boys who came to America during this like early colonization attempt and who entered into these like usually unwillingly cross-cultural relationships. So they were sent to live with these various tribes who were living in uh, what became Virginia. So she also talks about Pocahontas, who, you know, when John Smith met her, was like 11 and was kind of coming with a lot of embassies uh, to Jamestown and to like, you know, these settlers to kind of her presence indicated that it was a peaceful mission. And then she got to know them and, of course, ended up moving to England, marrying John Rolfe and dying of smallpox. So thanks, England. Um, But basically, it's this really interesting 17th century story about these, like, four young people who lived their lives between these cultures. And uh, again, once I got past the intro and a little bit of chapter one, it's really fascinating and I really liked it. So uh, Pocahontas and the English Boys Caught Between Cultures in Early Virginia by Karen Ordahl Kupperman.
Interesting. That is not how I imagined all that went, having watched Disney's Pocahontas, which is certainly an accurate portrayal <laughs> of Jamestown. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, now I have just around the river bend stuck in my head. Oh, my gosh. This is going off the rails. All right. So that is new books for this week. Uh, and we are going to shift gears now into our weekly theme, um, which uh, we are recording this on Friday, March third, March 15th, which is the Ides of March. Uh, and so we decided we would focus on some nonfiction that had to do with assassinations, uh, which are politically motivated killings. Uh, and so we're going to read some books about murder. Uh, and Alice is going to go first because she actually read a book about Caesar, which is the whole point of doing this segment. I uh, I want to make a brief note that March 15th, the Ides of March, is also the anniversary of my move to Chicago, which is the day that a man peed on my garbage cans. So that's what I think of <laughs> every March 15th. Okay. So my pick for assassination stories is The Death of Caesar, the Story of History's Most Famous Assassination by Barry Strauss. Um, as most people know, Julius Caesar was stabbed to death in the Roman Senate on March 15th, 44 BC, which that is a part I did not know, didn't know the year. That's a long time ago. So it's the Ides of March according to the Roman calendar. He was, says author Barry Strauss, the last casualty of one civil war and the first casualty of the next civil war, which would end the Roman Republic and inaugurate the Roman Empire, right? So you've got like, this kind of look when we look back on it it's like oh like the roman republic it's supposed to be so amazing and then the roman empire you think of like just terribleness so um maybe his <laughs> assassination was not great although didn't they assassinate him because they yes they wanted to return rome to the days when the senate ruled but this is from the book copy in case you couldn't tell but caesar hoped to pass along his new powers to his family, especially Octavian. So the people who were assassinating him, as most people know, right, were his friends. So Brutus, Cassius, uh, and Decimus. I don't know who Decimus is. He seems to be the less talked about of the three in popular culture. But I don't even know if he's in, like, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Uh, I remember Brutus and Cassius, because they've got, like, a little thing going on there. But anyway, that's beside the point. The point is that if you want to read um, a well-reviewed and interesting book about the death of Caesar, which is uh, certainly a, a cultural, uh, re re I guess, like, I was going to say hallmark, but more like a frequently returned to uh, cultural reference, then read The Death of Caesar, the story of history's most famous assassination by Barry Strauss. Excellent. Um, so my first pick is a book that was on my shelves for ever, it feels like. And I finally got around to reading for this segment. And I am so glad I did because it was really good. Uh, and that book is The Destin or Destiny of the Republic, A Tale of Madness, Medicine, and the Murder of a President by Candice Millard. Um, and so first of all, I will say that it has three of my favorite nonfiction subtitle words, which are madness, medicine, and murder. Um, and I just love, if the book has one of those in the subtitle, like I'm going to sort of look again and maybe pick it up. So uh, anyway, this book is an account of James Garfield, uh, President James Garfield's rides from poverty to becoming the American president. And then in the, the dramatic history of assassination and his legacy after that. Um, so I know very little about James Garfield, but based on this book, he was a super interesting guy. Um, he grew up extremely poor. Um, his, he lost his dad when he was very young. So his mom was um, supporting the family on their farm and um, worked really hard to do that and was able to pretty successfully raise all of her kids despite overwhelming poverty. Um, 
Garfield got to go to school when many of his siblings didn't. Um, he was a really smart guy. He moved very quickly through kind of school and leadership. He eventually like became the president of a small college when he was in his 20s, which just seems bananas to me. Um, he was elected to Congress when he was really young, and um, he actually uh, got nominated for president when he didn't run to be nominated for president. Um, there was this historically long Republican nominating convention and he wasn't on the ballot, but after like a day or more of balloting, somebody put him on and then like slowly support for him rose and he reluctantly got the nomination. So then he won and he went to Washington. Um, but just four months after he was inaugurated in 1881, uh, he was shot in the back by a deranged office seeker named Charles Guiteau, who was this guy who... Like, he was just, like, a super deranged, mediocre white dude. So partially he was deranged and probably mentally ill, but partially he just, like, had this sense of, like, grandeur and self-importance, and he felt like he should have a position in the administration. And he was writing all these letters and going to the office trying to get a job and being an ambassador to France or something. Um, and eventually, like, decided he was uh, – his real purpose was to kill the president. So he shot him, and the wound didn't have to be fatal, but – um, Garfield got terrible medical care, um, and his um, medical care turned into this weird power struggle between um, a bunch of doctors and um, the guy who won was kind of really bad at medicine uh, and made a bunch of really bad choices. Um, and it just, uh, it was such an interesting book. It's a very kind of contained um, history. So that was nice. It gives you a lot of information in a pretty clear, contained way. Um, and just uh, just really good. I, I definitely recommend this one. I, I read it really quickly. It was very good. So uh, that is Destiny of the Republic, A Tale of Madness, Medicine, and the Murder of a President by Candace Millard. Do you know the musical Assassins by Sondheim? I don't know. Um, I only like a couple of songs from it, but uh, one of the – Goteau is a character in it and because it's all about presidential assassins. Mm. And he has a song called The Ballad of Goteau. Just wanted to throw that in there. Uh, fun facts for everyone today. So my second pick is Assassination Vacation by Sarah Vell. There was no way we couldn't do this if we're talking about assassinations. Um, this is an amazing book. came out in 2006. Uh, I actually was I took it with me as one of two English books that I brought on a study abroad for five weeks to France, which is the first time I had been away from my family for like an extended period. And I was like, I will be immersed in French except for these like two books. And then I ended up missing English so badly that I like clung to these Sarah Val books because were, there were two Sarah Val books. And I, like because of that, I have like an extraordinary love for assassination vacation, but it's also very, very good. So what it's about is she covers the assassinations of three presidents, Lincoln, Garfield, and McKinley. So if you want, like, double Garfield, then read Kim's <laughs> recommendation, Destiny of the Republic. Come back. Read Assassination Vacation. So the way that she links these three assassinations is that Robert Todd Lincoln, Lincoln's son, was at all of them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> to the point bad luck yeah, he kept being like eventually he was like i'm not gonna attend any more presidential things because it seems like this is a bad idea also maybe this is incorrect information about robert todd lincoln but i feel like he's kind of a skis bag because he had his mother committed and it's like yeah maybe she's gonna be really upset about the stuff that's happened in her lifetime jeez robert todd okay so 
<laughs> in Assassination Vacation, Sarah Val, who is also, of course, the voice of Violet in The Incredibles, um, goes to on the kind of like historical tourism, uh, this kind of thing. So she visits all of these sites of these presidential assassinations and also tells you the historical background. Um, she talks about literature, architecture, sculpture. Um, it's really, really good and fun. She's got like kind of like a super, uh, I was going to say dark tone, but I think it's more rye and yeah <laughs> i'm like peering off into the distance at nothing as i try to figure out what i actually mean <laughs> in terms of encapsulating sarah vowel's writing but in essence you should read it it's a really fantastic book and it is again assassination vacation by sarah vowel yeah and if her voice if her voice her, her voice is a very um polarizing i would say but i listened to this one on audiobook and i really liked it and i like her voice so um it's worth a try but definitely um she reads her own books and i think some people really like it and some people really can't listen to her narrate so take your pick i guess um my second book is uh, called The Romanov Sisters by Helen Rappaport. Um, and Helen Rappaport is a historian who's written three books about the Romanovs, who are a big uh, Russian family uh, that was murdered during the Ruff Russian Revolution. Um, so one of the books is The Last Days of the Romanovs, Travity Tragedy at Ekaterinburg, and uh, The Race to Save the Romanovs, The Truth Behind the Secret Plans to Rescue the Russian Imperial Family. Um, but the one that I read is The Romanov Sisters. Um, I read this one several years ago, and I liked it very much. Um, and so this book focuses specifically on the domestic life of the Romanov family, trying to kind of capture and explain the joys and challenges that the four daughters were having during the final years that they were alive during Imperial Russia. Um, and so she makes these really interesting arguments about how um, their their home life and the choices that the Tsar and Tsarina made about how their family would live contributed to the civil unrest in Russia that eventually led to their capture and imprisonment and execution during the Russian Revolution. Um, so um, in particular, the two things I remember being really struck by was how um, the Empress Alexandra, she was uh, in pretty ill health. And so she kind of stayed away a lot of the time in that ill health, um, as well as the illness of their son, who was set to be the czar. Um, he had hemophilia. Um kind of forced the family to spend much of their time close to home and behind closed doors. And that kind of increased the distance that the family had between the people, uh, between, yeah, the distance the family had between the people of Russia. Um, and so the book focuses specifically on the four sisters and kind of their lives and everything like that. Um, and the, their eventual imprisonment and uh, assassination is a bit at the end of the book, but it's not a huge focus of it. But um, I really... I thought it was interesting. I didn't know a lot about the Romanovs before I read it, but I thought it was really kind of a fascinating peek. So, and I liked the domestic lens of it. I thought that was an interesting, um, interesting choice for trying to tell their story. So, uh, that book is the Romanov sisters by Helen Rappaport. How into the movie Anastasia were you as a child? So into Anastasia, very into so it. So how much does this book get into our favorite Anastasia? It doesn't really at all. I don't, I don't think, um, I don't remember. Um, I don't remember anything about it. So, oh. so this is kind of talking no. about just like the sisters in general, or like yeah, it's about the it's about the family and the the four sisters that that were imprisoned all together at the end of their lives. But it doesn't really get beyond that. So it's just talking about like them and like their interactions as like a whole and stuff, as opposed to like zeroing in. Yeah. Oh, okay, mm -hmm. that's interesting and sad. Um, I guess that if we're doing assassinations as a theme, it's not going to be a super up general set <laughs> of info. Okay. That's true. Uh, so my 
final pick for this fun section, it is my final, right? Yes. Is the, we changed the order. This is not my fault. Is the assassination of the Archduke, Sarajevo, 1914, and the romance that changed the world by Greg King and Sue Woolman. So in terms of subtitles, mm. that's pretty good. Um, So the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand was, um, you know, in, in general is seen as the the start of World War One and formerly known as the Great War and everything terrible <laughs> happened at that time. Uh, we were in the middle of the progressive age and that stopped in the middle of all that. Um, and then we kind of got the 20s and everything else after. And here we are today. So really, we can all trace it back to the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. But to be serious, in the summer of 1914, there were these three huge empires, right, that were taking over Europe. So there's Germany, which was newly created because, what, like 1871 or something like that, unified. Russia, uh, soon to be not Russia, and Austria-Hungary. Four years later, all that was gone because of World War I. So all of this, again, traces back to the assassination. But this book is saying, at its heart, was a tragic love story because so... Archduke Franz Ferdinand was this Austrian heir. He married for love against the wishes of the emperor. He and his wife, Sophie, were humiliated and shunned. I think Sophie also died in the assassination attempt, like not even attempt, in the assassination, but no one really talks about that. So uh, the, the end of their copy is the two bullets fired in Sarajevo not only ended their love story, but also led to war and a century of conflict, which seems legit, actually. Um, so if you're kind of interested in you know, how did all this get started? I've heard jokes like on Blackadder. They say, I heard it started because, oh, crap, no. Oh, because, oh, wait, I can do this. I heard it started because a bloke named Archie Duke shot an ostrich because he was hungry. <laughs> and, it, and it's funny. <laughs> so, oh, gosh, I apologize for ruining that. Dang it. That was a good joke. So, uh, in essence, yeah, so this is a very pivotal event. And if you want more info, read The Assassination of the Archduke, Sarajevo, 1914, and The Romance That Changed the World by Greg King and Sue Woolmans. That sounds super interesting. I don't read a lot of World War One or Two nonfiction. Like, I just don't find it super interesting. But that one actually sounds like it could be interesting, like, given the angle of focusing on those two people and, like, what their um, story and assassination meant. So... Excellent pick. That's really interesting. Um, all right. So with that, we have kind of rounded up some assassination books. Um, if you are interested in that, we've got them all in the show notes. And um, not our cheeriest topic ever, but always interesting angles and, and events in history. So there we are. Uh, and so with that, we are going to wrap up the podcast as we usually do every week with um, what we are reading right now. Um, and I've actually had kind of a weird reading week in my nonfiction in particular. Um, I don't remember what inspired it, but I decided I wanted to read Alyssa Mastromonaco's first book, which is Who Thought This Was a Good Idea? And Other Questions You Should Have Answers to When You Work in the White House. And uh, So this is an, an Obama administration memoir, and I was very obsessed with those last year, um, and, but I hadn't read any for a while. Um, and I can't remember, but I really wanted to pick this one up. So I got it home from the library, and I read it in just a couple of days. It's a really short, kind of fun look at her time working for President Obama. Um, Mastromonaco started working for him when he was a senator in Illinois and was with him all the way through his campaign and then worked at the White House um, in scheduling and um, eventually became a, a deputy 
deputy director, I believe, at the White House. Um, and so she shares stories kind of about that and about her path as a woman in um, politics and work. Um, it was just like really interesting and, and fun. And then she actually has her second book came out just, I think, last week. Um, and it's called... So here's the thing, notes on growing up, getting older, and trusting your gut. And again, it's another book kind of about women and leadership and work. Um, she has some overlap stories, but kind of comes at them from different angles. Um, but I think she's really funny. Um, she's super frank. She does not take herself too seriously. Um, and I appreciated that. Um, there's some parts that are a little name dropping in the sense that she just says my friend Mindy Kaling, uh, which <laughs> when she says, I'm like, who's just says my friend Mindy Kaling, but I guess if you worked for President Obama, you probably are friends with Mindy Kaling. Good for you. I'm not jealous or anything. Um, but anyway, I I don't know. I just read these back to back and I really thought they were fun and interesting. And um, she's a, a good narrator. It's a kind of peek behind the scenes in politics a little bit, but uh, they're pretty personal. Also, um, some very frank and honest stories, which I appreciate. She definitely doesn't. Um, doesn't take herself too seriously or isn't afraid to kind of share some um, embarrassing stories about herself. But she, I think, is pretty discreet when it comes to, to stories about other people, which I appreciated. She's not really throwing anybody under the bus ever, which is nice. So, um, yeah, I, I liked the first one who thought this was a good idea a little better, but um, they were both kind of fun to read back to back this week. So that was who thought this was a good idea. And so here's the thing, both by Alyssa Mastromonaco. This is like a shocking podcast crossover thing in my brain because she was a guest on Here to Make Friends, the podcast about The Bachelor, last week. Oh, whoa. I, I had to look her up and she and, – because I was like, who is this lady? And I was like, oh, she was like high up in Obama's presidency? That's interesting. Yeah. But um, yeah, she does a lot of um, like writing and cultural commentary and stuff and she has a lot of opinions about The Bachelor and is not afraid to disagree with the hosts of Here to Make Friends. <laughs> so that's my main, yeah. Oh, so she was not there to make friends either. Oh, nice. Well, they're, but they are here to make friends. So she's going against the spirit of the show, but that's fine. Okay. So my current read is Kings of Georgian Britain by Catherine Curzon. Uh, these are both very <laughs> us books. Kim's like lovely political memoir and then my like let's stay mired in the 18th century please only not in reality because that would be <laughs> terrible but kings of georgia and britain is just talking about all of the georges <laughs> as far as i can tell who were kings of england <laughs> starting in 1714 uh george the third died in i think 18 something <laughs> Oh, don't yell at me. But it was like, I don't know, like 1820 or 1818 or something like that. But anyway, so it's talking about them and what they were like and how, um, I don't know if any of them was actually that popular and kind of like popular perceptions of them and, and if they're true or not. So it's like kind of breezily written mm -hmm. um, and I am enjoying it thus far. So Kings of Georgian Britain, get that on your bookshelf. Excellent. And with that... <laughs> You can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. And uh, if you so feel inclined, please go to iTunes or your podcaster of choice and rate and review us. Um, this helps people find us more easily. And while you're there, you can subscribe so that you can get new episodes the very minute that they come out. Uh, so with that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast.